again, everyone, and welcome to Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. You know, everywhere you look across the cotton belt right now, this year's cotton crop is being defoliated, and it's starting to come out of the field. It's certainly visible all around us here in the Mid-South, and according to USDA, it's also visible pretty much everywhere else in our cotton-producing states right now. I'm Jim Stedman, editor of Cotton Grower, and with me, as always, is my colleague and friend, Beck Barnes. Now, Beck, we've had an opportunity to get out and visit with some growers and researchers and other industry friends in certain parts of the cotton belt over the last couple of weeks. Now, based on what you've seen and heard, how are you feeling about this year's crop? Well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we have. Uh, I, I even got to do some traveling, which was nice for me. And uh, we'll get into our Lubbock trip, I know, here shortly. But, um, you know, I mean, from, <laughs> from I've seen what the USDA Crop Progress Report tells us. You know, I've seen really nice looking fields up and down 61 in the Delta and then went out to Lubbock and talking to farmers out there. And, uh, uh, you know, it's dry. And, you know, no, can't can't put lipstick on that pig. It's been it's been too dry and it's been too hot and and man, we feel for him for the second year in a row. Um, but you know, it is what it is at this point. We we were out there at an eventful time. We uh, were paying close attention to uh, uh, the events in D.C. that were happening while we were out there. I think we avoided a shutdown while we were there and. Uh, and then we went to, again, I'm, I'm stepping all over our toes because we're going to get into this stuff later, but I would just say <laughs> we went to a BASF field day, which we will explore further here shortly, but boy, it was nice to see. I mean, they probably had 300 farmers at this thing. Yeah. And uh, it's just good to see the the industry, you know, that's, a you know, kind of an uh, indicator of how vibrant uh, the cotton industry is when you go to something like that and farmers just show up from all over and they're interested in new technology and varieties and yield and making plans for next year and it just kind of makes you feel good even though it's been a tough season out there uh you know these guys always have a positive outlook and good hope yeah well you know and, and of course the one thing that you and i talked about we have kept our red in, in terms of every time we go to lubbock it rains yeah and uh it's weird at it, this point let me say it is i mean we We'd been checking long range weather forecast, you know, for the, you know, for the, the last couple of weeks and man, it looked good. It was going to be good and, you know, dry. We're going to be able to get out and, you know, maybe get some really good photos while we were talking with growers and things like that. And I landed Lubbock uh, on Monday night at the middle of the biggest thunderstorm they've had in months. And I mean, we're talking about growers that I talked to anywhere from three to four inches of rain uh, overnight. So everything was nice and sloppy and wet and even though they appreciated the rain, it was not exactly timely, let's yeah. just say. So well, I don't know about you, but I had a grower over there offered to buy me a plane ticket to come out next July. Yeah. Well, yeah, we should do that. And and regardless of what the weather app is telling me, I will, I'm going to just start packing a, a rain jacket. Um, <laughs> Because I got, I mean, like this happened to me the last three times I've gone out there. I've been in the middle of a drought, and I show up and they get rain, and I'm, you know, yeah. trying to be out in a field, and of course I didn't pack anything for weather. Um, so lesson learned. Yeah, and it's it's always fun to haul muddy boots back on an airplane too. Right, or so. worse, like muddy loafers. You know, again, like I don't, <laughs> I do not pack for mud when I go to Lubbock, and it, sure enough, it finds me every time. I'm going to remind you next time I have to go. Yeah, yeah, you know, and all that. Well. Obviously, while we were in Lubbock, as you said, you know, we were able to visit with some progressive cotton growers to the west and south of Lubbock. We visited with our good friends at Plains Cotton Growers to discuss the production year in West Texas. 
and the current political environment impacting foreign policy. And as you mentioned, we uh, got to go to the BASF Field Day to learn more about the new Accent Flex technology that will be available to growers beginning in 2024. You know, it's also good to be able to catch up with a lot of people that we've uh, we've seen and heard uh, over the years, and also to catch up uh, with, with folks like Kerry Martin, the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network, to kind of compare notes on the year. And speaking of the current political environment, the cotton industry, like most of the country, is watching the confusion and chaos in Washington, D.C., and what it might mean for legislation, and more specifically for farm policy in the near term. Robbie Minnick, Vice President of Washington Operations for the National Cotton Council, will be joining us in just a few minutes to help answer some of those questions and provide some additional on-the-scene background. There's a lot to unpack in this discussion, and we're looking forward to that here in just a few minutes, so be sure to stay tuned. Yeah, that's right, Jim. Uh, but before we uh, bring you that interview with Robbie, uh, we want to first touch on a couple quick items, news, and notes from around the cotton industry. Uh, we have mentioned that harvest is now underway across the belt. We are looking at the USDA Crop Progress Report for October 8th. That's three days ago as we podcast. Uh, and we see that 25% of the total U.S. crop has been harvested, uh, with the bulk of that current activity is centered in the Mid-South. Uh, USDA says that 84% of the Louisiana crop is now out of the field. That's followed by Mississippi at 42%, Arkansas at 32%, Missouri at 23%, and Tennessee at 15%. Over in the southeast, Alabama leads those states with 20% of its cotton crop harvested. And meanwhile, Texas uh, heads up the southwest with 30% of their sizable crop on the way to the gin. Overall crop condition remains relatively unchanged. We got 32% of the total crop is rated good to excellent, 27% is rated fair, and 41% rated poor to very poor. Uh, conditions in the southeast, mid-south, and western states remain very favorable, but it's those southwest states that are still, re still reeling from another year of hot and dry conditions. Now, three influential leaders in the U.S. cotton industry have been announced as the 2023 class of cotton, excuse me, 2023 class of the Cotton Research and Promotion Hall of Fame. Some of these names are certainly familiar to us. The three honorees, James H. Jimmy Sanford, the late D.D. Dick Hardy, and the late Murray Williams were chosen from nominations made by certified producer and importer organizations and voted upon by a committee of Cotton Incorporated Board of Directors. The program, which is now in its 10th year, recognizes individuals who have made significant contributions to the program or to the cotton industry in general. The honorees will be formally inducted into the Cotton Research and Promotion Program Hall of Fame at Cotton Incorporated's board annual meeting this December in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about the Cotton Research and Promotion Hall of Fame and its, uh, and its honorees can be found online at cottoninc.com. Lastly, uh, from your uh, local fashion industry podcast, Cotton Companion, uh, the French fashion brand Kiabi, and I'm going to give a big shout out to Jim Stebman for giving me a pronunciation guide on this. Kiabi is the newest member at the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. 
uh, founded in 1978 in northern France and with 579 shops across 25 countries. So I'm joking, but they, they're a global brand. Uh, Kiabi is committed to sustainable sourcing and driving positive social and environmental change in fashion retail. At least 72% of its products are already designed using sustainable fibers with a goal to reach 100% by 2025 to help reduce energy and water usage while limiting pollution and habitat de degradation in the supply chain. I know uh, those buzzwords, you guys hear them so often, they kind of lose uh, their pizzazz on y'all. But I mean, this, you know, little little notes, news and notes like this item here are kind of case in point, uh, uh, proof of concept of this sustainability movement that the Cotton Trust Protocol kind of standardizes for us. You know, I mean, these, these uh, you may get tired of hearing about, <laughs> you know, sustainability but the Cotton Trust Protocol just brought in this brand that is global across 25 countries to use our fibers, you know, use Cotton Trust Protocol uh, uh, cotton that comes out of this country. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is a proof, proof of concept of uh, these things working and being to our benefit. So well done to those of y'all who are involved in the protocol, the Trust Protocol, and, and great job to the folks at U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol Signing another one up. Yeah. And I think, the you know, the one thing about it is it's very easy to, uh, you know, to get excited about or recognize some of the the bigger names that have already signed up for this, uh, for the protocol. It's like groups like Macy's, Levi Strauss, names that we recognize here in the U.S. on a daily basis. But the fact that you're bringing in smaller companies or certainly companies that have their niche in, in, uh, in other countries like Kiabi is, is a real coup. I think, and again, like you said, a real testament to uh, to the programs that the Pro Trust Protocol is putting in place. Interesting part about this is it seems like there's a new somebody else signing up almost every couple of weeks. Yeah, so it's uh, it's exciting to kind of watch the growth that uh, that this program is uh, is currently experiencing. No doubt. You know, to say things have been a little chaotic in Washington D.C. for the last few weeks, I think would be the understatement of the year. With all the political news and maneuverings comes the real likelihood that the uh, a new farm bill is going to be impacted, along with multiple other programs and pieces of legislation. Robbie Minnick is Vice President of Washington Operations for the National Cotton Council. He's had a front row seat to all the congressional turmoil, action, drama, and results, and he's joining us today to discuss the current political climate and the implications for getting a new farm bill finished. Robbie, thanks for joining us, and welcome back to the Cotton Companion. Thank you. It's great to be back. Uh, appreciate you having me again. You know, the the last few weeks uh, in D.C. have, have it's, you know, I, I think back to uh, after the elections last year, a member of Congress, we were talking about, you know, what the next year was going to look like. And he and his response was, it's going to be a wild ride. And he was he was not wrong. Um, you know, the last few weeks, we've seen the unexpected and the unprecedented. Um, the unpre unexpected part was uh, what happened with the uh, continuing resolution and funding the government? Everyone, uh, myself, members, staff, all thought that we were barreling towards a, a government shutdown. And uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, kind of the last minute came out with a continuing resolution uh, that would uh, he thought that would pass the House and ultimately pass the Senate, and and it, and it did. Uh, but no one really saw that coming. That was that was the the unexpected part. Uh, then a few days later, uh, because of those actions, and, and I think probably some other things that were 
uh, just outside the, the realm of, of legislation, um, we saw the, the motion to vacate be brought up on the House floor. Uh, and so then we then we moved into the unprecedented, and, and the House representatives um, voted to uh, remove uh, Speaker McCarthy as Speaker. And uh, what we saw happen then was something that we've never seen happen before. Uh, and we are now have a, an acting Speaker of the House. Uh, that's Patrick McHenry from North Carolina, and he's in that role because the um, after 9-11, uh, Congress passed a law that said, you know, a, a kind of a continuity of government operation that w when a new speaker is uh, elected, uh, they're to write a, a number of names down on a piece of paper, hand it to the uh, clerk of the House, and it's kept in secret uh, so that if for some reason the, the speaker of the House could no longer, uh, was no longer uh, to be speaker. And again, think about it from the 9-11 idea. I mean, this is a cataclysmic event type situation. Uh, the clerk of the house is to open that envelope and the first name on the, the list, if, if they are able, uh, they become acting speaker of the house. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're really in, in times and using things that, that were created after, uh, after 9-11 in, in that, in that environment. Uh, so Patrick McHenry is a great friend of the cotton industry. Uh, he's the acting speaker. Uh, the house Republican conference is, is meeting. Uh, currently to elect a, a new speaker. Uh, the the two candidates that are there and vying for that are, are Jim Jordan of, of Ohio and Steve Scalise uh, of Louisiana, who's the current majority leader. And so, uh, you know, it, it's unclear whether they can, either of them can get the requisite votes. We'll find out. Um, and then uh, how long does it take uh, to get through that process and get a new speaker elected so that the House can, can start functioning again? Yeah, uh, Robbie, we should say, in the interest of full disclosure uh, to our audience, as we are recording right now, they are nearing a vote on speaker. Is that correct? Yeah, the, uh, the actually, um, well, they're, they're, they're not to the, the speaker uh, yet. Uh, there was a rules change that uh, was being brought that basically said that um, in order to be nominated on the floor of the House uh, within for Republicans, um, the, the party's candidate would have to garner 217 votes inside the House Republican Conference. Uh, and, and that um, amendment or that amendment to the, the Republican uh, Conference rules was just defeated. That information just came out. And that's a victory for uh, Majority Leader Steve, Steve Scalise. He was opposed uh, to that change. Um, and so that, that signals that uh, he very well is now probably the clear favorite going into the vote. Uh, uh, today uh, to possibly become the next Speaker of the House. Look, I'll tell you what, I love uh, our audience and myself getting a good civics lesson here on the Cotton Companion podcast, a good political uh, uh, lesson here. That's why they tune in, no doubt. Um, so uh, I'll uh, move it along because, yeah, by the time these guys are hearing this, uh, all this will likely be old news. So, uh, we want to move to a topic that will still be kind of front of mind, and that's going to be um, the farm bill, you know, which on work work continues on that. Prior to the threatened government shutdown, it seemed like uh, work on the farm bill was slowly progressing, but likely moving towards a short-term extension of the current bill, which we've seen before. Uh, what's happening now with this legislation in the House and Senate Ag Committees, and what's kind of our best-case scenario? Yeah, now that's a great question, and... and the with everything that's going on in Washington between 
uh, the electing a new speaker in the house between the government funding that that's really sucked the oxygen out of, of, of most everything. Uh, and, but you know, behind the scenes staff of the Senate and, and house agriculture committees are continuing to work. They're continuing to, to get scores from CBO about, you know, to, uh, determine what changes and what improvements they're trying to make, how much that would, would cost. And if they're able to, to, to make those changes and improvements, uh, so, you know, the, the staff level that's still going, uh, but you know, with the government funding that that's set to, to go through, um, November 17th, uh, Congress will need a new, uh, probably will not be able to get the government funded completely funded by then. So they'll have to have another continuing resolution, uh, uh, to follow that one that would go into December. And so at that time, you're really out of, uh, much of any time, uh, realistically to try to do any. Uh, thing major on a farm bill this calendar year beyond, as you mentioned, uh, an extension of current law. That's going to have to happen before January 1, uh, when some of the, the permanent law changes from the 1940s would go into effect. And so the real question is, is it a six months extension to sometime early, late spring, early summer, or is it a one year extension? Yeah. You, you mentioned, um, we have the, of course, we averted the government shutdown here a couple of weeks weeks ago now, uh, as we pod here on October 11th. Uh, but there was this 45-day extension that we all heard about. You referenced it a second ago. They're going to have another uh, decision on government funding coming in November at the end of this window. Um, you mentioned there would likely be uh, kind of a kick-the-can scenario, if I understand correctly, again. But what happens if we don't get that and we have a the government shutdown really happens this time for who knows how long. Um, what happens to the farm bill in that scenario? Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's uh, something that we hopefully Congress can avoid uh, for, you know, the cotton industry, uh, a government shutdown, especially this time of year, uh, is very detrimental uh, because some of the farm bill programs that are currently there uh, won't be able to function under a government shutdown. So the main one would be the marketing loan program. So if the government is shut down, producers can't enter into the loan. If they've got cotton in the loan, they can't, they want to sell it. They can't take it out of the loan. Uh, and so that becomes very problematic. Um, I, I think Congress is going to try to avoid it. That was, uh, the, the goal last time, uh, that got us to that November 17th date, but you know, who knows what happens, uh, you know, here in a few weeks, whenever that expires and are they able to kind of, as you said, kick the can down the road a little bit longer, uh, or do we go into a, a shutdown? Now, Robbie, you mentioned a moment ago that just uh, about the farm bill possibly reverting to permanent law if an agreement or extension isn't in place by January 1st. Can you explain what that means for U.S. agricultural in general, and maybe more specifically, what does it mean for cotton? Yeah, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, that provision is in the farm bill. It's kind of the hammer to make sure that the Congress takes action and, and uh, does a farm bill or extends the current farm bill. Uh, and you don't go back to, to the 1940s uh, programs that were there. You know, for, for milk and uh, dairy and commodity programs, uh, it, it would be a, a seed change. Uh, for commodities, um, USDA's never really even tried to implement it, but you would actually go back to, uh, most people believe, uh, allocated acres. And so some people would be allowed to, to grow cotton and, and other commodities, and others would not. Uh, and we don't know who those people would be or how USDA would implement that. And I don't, I honestly not sure that USDA, um, 
is very clear on, on how they would have to implement that. So I think that's the why that's why it's very clear that that Congress is going to take action uh, and, and extend the current farm bill so that you don't have to go to these really draconian programs uh, that would be very very different than what we see today. Yeah, um, uh, Robbie. I, okay, I'll I'll just tell you in the spirit of the tough time that I give our ag economists. Uh, frequently OA Cleveland. The last question I toss him is I put him on the spot and make him tell me where cotton prices are going to go, make him go on the record. So I'm going to do that to you a little bit. Can you tell me, putting you on the spot here, uh, your prediction on when is this discord on Capitol Hill going to, when are they going to reach an agreement on funding? When will uh, we suspect the uh, House Republican Party will have a new leader here soon, but uh, when will we get, when will get we get out of this discord and uh, resume work and not have this specter of you know the problems with the loan program hanging over our head? Well, I I I hope soon. Uh, the um, you know I think that the the House will select a new speaker this week, and and that uh, will will kind of kick things off. Hopefully, then they can regroup, reset, and really start uh, doing the the business of the American people, and. You know, to that end, I think um, by the end of the year, uh, I think that a CR would have to go into December, a continuing resolution to keep the government funded. Uh, and, and I think that they're going to make a res find resolution on uh, the government funding in, in, in December. And so hopefully then it kind of clears the deck so that early next year work can really start in, on, in earnest uh, within the committee's uh, beyond what they're they're already doing and have prepared uh, to to get a farm bill, um, you know, out of the committees in both the House and the Senate and across the floor, and, and hopefully eventually signed into law by the president sometime next year. Very well handled, very smoothly and diplomatically handled. That's why I, I had all the confidence in the world of you up there in D.C. Man, you you, you hit that one out of the park. Um, <laughs> Hey, Robbie, we, we want to thank you for joining us uh, again to help explain some of these issues that are facing farm policy and its potential impact on us in cotton. It really is uh, a, a privilege for us to have you uh, come on our show and, and help explain it to a simple-minded uh, guy like me. So uh, we're going to be watching with our fingers crossed that this comes to a satisfactory solution. And once again, man, we, we just appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. I hope you get uh, rave reviews on the civic lesson if you use it. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. Thanks to Robbie Minnick for taking some of his valuable time to outline the current Washington and farm policy situation for us. And as always, thanks to you, dear listeners, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you like what you heard, please be sure to spread the word and tell your friends about the Cotton Companion podcast. Here's where and how they can find us. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, Sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter 
And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. The Cotton Companion Podcast is produced twice monthly by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson, our talented colleagues at the World Headquarters for Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. I'm Jim Stedman, he's Beck Barnes, and we'll be back with you in a few weeks with the next episode of The Cotton Companion. Until then, stay safe, keep those pickers and strippers rolling. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made fun.